God is on his throne. He will do what he has determined to do. Nothing will happen outside of his great, sovereign, eternal purpose. So Jesus says, don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What are the events of the end times? Do you know how to identify them? And if you're a follower of Christ, where will you be during that time? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom will put the focus on the time span from Christ's ascending back to heaven, as happened not long after his resurrection, all the way to the midpoint of the future seven-year Great Tribulation period. And you might be surprised to learn that the return of Jesus could be closer than you think. Keep that in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. We find ourselves in the middle of the longest sermon Jesus ever gave about the future and what's coming. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, the entire chapter is devoted to this sermon. And that's unusual because Mark is really not prone to give a lot of Jesus' teaching. Most of it is action. The the most common word in Mark, the word that sort of stands out as you read through it, is the word immediately. It's written to the Romans, and it's about action. It's about what Jesus did as a man of action, as a servant. But here is a message about the future. Just to remind you of the context, it's late Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. Jesus has just left the temple for the last time. And as he left the temple, he predicted that not a single stone would be left upon another, He said it would all be completely destroyed when he and his disciples had crossed the Kidron Valley and had reached the top of the Mount of Olives. The Gospels tell us they sat down to rest. Now the Mount of Olives rises some 150 feet higher than the Temple Mount, so it provided a magnificent view of the temple and the entire Temple Mount. He and the disciples, looking from the Mount of Olives, to the west across that great temple mount where the magnificent temple of Herod stood. 35 acres of area encompassed in that great temple mount. Could hold up to 400,000 people. It was a magnificent structure. It was in that context, sitting there on the top of the Mount of Olives after having ascended that hill, looking back across the Kidron Valley, that four of Jesus' disciples, those who were in the inner circle, approached him privately. According to Matthew's gospel, they ask him three questions. Here's how Matthew records it in Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, and then I've added the numbers just to delineate the questions they really asked. Tell us, first of all, when will these things happen? That is, the destruction of the temple. Secondly, what will be the sign of your coming? And thirdly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So they were really asking three separate questions. When will the temple be destroyed that you have just predicted is going to happen, not one stone left on another? What are the signs of your coming? And thirdly, what are the signs of the end of the age? Now, as we've already learned, 
They didn't see those as three distinct events separated by long periods of time. Instead, in their first century eschatology, they would have seen those three events occurring quickly together in a kind of a staccato-like fashion, one right after the other. That's the context in which they ask. The Messiah is here. They know Jesus is the Messiah. They know that he is surely soon going to manifest himself as Messiah, and all of these things must happen in conjunction with that. Jesus, in a remarkable sermon, apparently delivered to only four of his disciples, explains what's going to happen in the future. And he answered all three of their questions. The answer to the question about when the temple would be destroyed is only recorded in one place, and we've already looked at it. I won't take you there. But Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 24. But in Mark 13, where we find ourselves, in Matthew 24, which is Matthew's record of the same sermon, and the rest of Luke 21, where Luke records the sermon, Jesus answers their other two questions, questions two and three. What are the signs of your coming, and what are the signs of the end of the age? Because those occur in conjunction with one another. Now, just to remind you of the flow of this sermon, so you kind of know where we're going, I've already pointed this out to you, but it's basically in four parts. The first part comes in verses 5 through 13. We'll call that section the beginning of birth pangs, and that is the, the period of time running from Christ's life on earth, from the ascension, to the midpoint of a future seven-year tribulation, and I'll tell you why I believe that. The second act, or the second part of this sermon, is running from verse 14 down to verse 23. It is what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. This is a period of time that runs from the midpoint of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation. So the last three and a half years of that seven-year period, the Bible refers to as the tribulation period. The third section of the sermon runs from verse 24 down to verse 27. It is specifically the second coming and what will happen in conjunction with Jesus' second coming. The world has, as I've said to you, not seen the last of Jesus Christ. He promised he would return, and he will. And those verses describe what will happen when that happens. The fourth part of this sermon is really an exhortation. It begins in verse 28, runs down through verse 37. An exhortation to the disciples, then and now and in the future, to be alert and to be ready. So in this message, Jesus specifically prophesies what will happen from the time of his life on earth through the age in which we live all the way to his second coming. Many Christians believe that this sermon was fulfilled either entirely, we call them full preterists, or mostly partial preterists in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But those positions cannot be correct. Why? I just want to begin by telling you why Mark 13 did not happen in 70 AD. There are a number of reasons. Let me give you the three primary reasons. First of all, Jesus describes the tribulation in this sermon as a time that is unparalleled in all of human history. Look at verse 19. For those days, whatever time he's talking about, 
will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. In other words, whatever time period he's talking about is completely unparalleled in all of human history. The time around 70 AD with its earthquakes and the eruption of Vesuvius and all of the things that occurred and certainly the destruction of Jerusalem itself by Titus and his armies, those were horrible times. But folks, those do not rise to the occasion of what Jesus describes here. There's a second reason that Mark 13 could not have happened back in 70 AD, and that is that the events that are described here will be accompanied by extreme signs in the heavens. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, probably asteroids and meteorites hitting the earth, disrupting life on this planet, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. That didn't happen in 70 A.D., And you've got to do a whole lot of spiritualizing to make that have happened around the time of 70 A.D. The third reason Mark 13 could not have happened in 70 A.D. is that the events described here will be followed immediately by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. The sermon finishes with the second coming, and these events finish with the second coming. So for those reasons and for others, but those being the primary ones, the sermon Jesus preaches here cannot be primarily about what happened in 70 AD. Instead, it points to the future. In this sermon, Jesus addressed a long series of events that begin with his ascension and last to the end of the age. I just want us to look at the first part. The time from Christ's ascension to the midpoint of a future seven-year tribulation period. That's recorded for us in verses 5 through 13. Look at them with me. Look back at verse Three, let's get the context. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. 
But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved." Now, before we get into the details of that section of Scripture, I want to first make sure that you have the big picture of eschatology. That's simply a study of last things, of what the Bible says about what is still to come. I've called it the ordo eschatos, the order of last things. Now, for us, that starts with our own death. If Jesus does not return, all of us will die. It is appointed unto man once to die. You will, as I will, if the Lord tarries, die. Then there will be what is known as the intermediate state. Theologians call it the state between death and when Christ returns. We'll talk about what that is in just a moment. Then comes on the scale of time, the rapture. That is when Christ comes for his church. It's described in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's intimated in other places as well. After that time comes the tribulation period, a seven-year period of turmoil on earth. Not people bringing tribulation to Christians, although that will be true, but it's called the tribulation because God will bring tribulation on the earth. He will bring his judgment and outpour it on the earth during those days. After that seven-year period of the tribulation comes the second coming. Jesus returns. He takes the earth back as his own, and out of the second coming comes his reign on the earth that's called the millennium. That will be followed, that thousand-year period of time will be followed by the great white throne of judgment described in Revelation 20, when every unbelieving person will stand before God and give an account. The books, the records of his life will be opened. He will be judged from those, and according to Revelation 20, Jesus Christ himself will consign every unbeliever to eternal destruction in the lake of fire. That will be followed by the eternal state. For unbelievers, it will be the lake of fire. For believers, it will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, just to to sort of orient you, obviously, death and and the intermediate state are of unknown duration. We don't know how long that will be because we don't know when the end-time events are going to start. But the, the rapture is an event, a momentary event when Christ returns for his own. It occurs at a moment in time. The tribulation is a seven-year period, and it will be followed by the event of the second coming. It's described in Revelation 19. The millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, is described in a number of places in Scripture, but it's especially laid out in, in Revelation 20. Following that comes the event of the great white throne. We're told in that section of Scripture that God will speak the universe as we now know it out of existence. There will be nothing but God, His great throne, and all of the people who've been created. And they will stand before Him. And then, of course, the eternal state is eternity future. Where will believers be during all of these events? Well, when it comes to death and the intermediate state... When you die, if you're in Christ, your soul will be immediately in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. Your body will remain in the grave. 
But when the rapture comes, if you have died, your soul will come back with Christ from heaven and you'll be given a new glorified body. Your body will be raised into a new glorified incorruptible form according to 1 Corinthians 15. If you are alive, if we are here when the rapture occurs, then after those who have died are reunited with glorified bodies, we too will be gathered to Christ according to 1 Thessalonians 4, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. During the tribulation period, we will be in heaven. Where are we, those who have died before the tribulation period, where are we during that time? Or what happens? Why isn't the rapture mentioned in Matthew 24 and Mark 13? We'll touch on that next time. But we're in heaven during that seven-year period. The second coming, we come back with Christ to the earth. That's pictured in Revelation 19. And during the millennium, we're here with Christ as he reigns on the earth. The great white throne, we are present, but not judged at that judgment. We will already have gone through what the Bible calls the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, the place where believers receive their rewards for their service. We will not be judged for our sins because those were fully and completely judged on Jesus Christ on the cross. And then after the great white throne where we will be present, we will live on a new earth. We are not bound eternally to live in heaven. Revelation's very clear. God will make a new heavens and a new earth, a new universe in which righteousness is at home. And that's where we're destined for. We will live on a perfect earth. As much as we enjoy this one, imagine what it'll be like when all the effects of sin are removed. So that's a biblical ordo eschatos. That's what it looks like for the future in the big picture. Now, in the first section of the Olivet Discourse that we're going to look at tonight, which we just read together, Jesus describes the period that begins with his life and runs to the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation period. And I say midpoint because when you get to verse 14, there's a specific event described that we know from other texts occurs at the very midpoint of that tribulation period, and I'll show you that when we get there. But that's what the verses I just read for you, verses 5 to 13, that's what they describe, is from Jesus to the midpoint of that seven-year period called the tribulation. Now, with that in mind, let's look at it together. I've called it the beginning of, of birth pangs, because that's exactly what Jesus calls it in verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now that is a very descriptive expression. Jesus is comparing the flow of human history to the contractions that a woman experiences during childbirth. Think about how those are connected. Contractions begin lighter and less frequent, and they gradually become increasingly intense and frequent. In the same way, both the natural and man-made disasters that Jesus describes in these verses will gradually grow more intense and more frequent as we get closer to the end. There's another part of this picture, though, and it's that with contractions... A woman's contractions during childbirth, there are times of peace and calm between the contractions, but those times shorten near the end. 
Jesus is implying by using this image that the periods of peace and calm on earth will become increasingly hard to find as we get near the end. And thirdly, by using this picture, he also reminds us that with a woman, the pain of the birth pangs promises what? A wonderful outcome. In the case of a woman's contractions, a new baby. In the case of the events Jesus is describing, they will usher in his coming and the birth of a new age. So that's why he uses this image. And as we work our way through this first section, Jesus gives us a series of signs. Understand that these signs are signs of the end, but they are not perfectly clear signs. And the reason is this. Although all of these signs will occur in great intensity at the very end, they also occur throughout human history. So when these things happen, Jesus says, don't assume that means it's now the end. In fact, look at the end of verse 7. Jesus says, when you hear all these things, that is not yet the end. Look at the end of verse 8. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, of course, at some point in the future, these events Jesus describes here will mark the end, but we can't know exactly when that is. So what we read then in verses 5 through 13 are, think of it as recurring patterns throughout human history that cannot be used as legitimate markers of the end. They are both signs and at the same time, non-signs. So let's look at the birth pangs Jesus predicts that will occur throughout human history, but like contractions in a woman giving birth will occur in relentless and ever-increasing waves of intensity and frequency as we approach the end of the world, the end of time as we know it. First of all, Jesus says, when he speaks of these birth pangs, he says there will be false Christs, false prophets, and false predictions. First of all, look at false Christs here in verses 5 and 6. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Jesus is warning his disciples, his true disciples, not to be misled by false Christs. Many will come claiming to be the Messiah, and many will be misled by their claims. Not true believers, they hear their shepherd's voice and respond, but many others will be. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the claim of these men is made even clearer. Look at what Matthew says, Matthew 24, 5 Here's how he quotes the Lord. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, the Messiah, and will mislead many. It's interesting. The first recorded false claim to be the Messiah after Jesus' resurrection came from a man named Bar Kokhba. He was the leader of the last Jewish revolt in 132 AD. Since that time, one Jewish scholar estimates that since the beginning of the second century, there have been more than 64 men who have arisen claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus also warned of false prophets. In Matthew 24, verse 11, many false prophets will arise 
and will mislead many. Those who claim to be representing God, but speaking error and falsehood, directing God's people or attempting to direct God's people away from Him. There will also be false predictions. Luke, in Luke 21, in his record of this great sermon, says this, He said, see to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. There's the claim. And their message will be, the time is near. It's the time. He says, do not go after them. Don't follow them. Don't believe them. Don't follow them. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, The Future According to Jesus. Tom will bring you part six next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces the Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.